HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello and welcome to A Taste of the Past on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host, and today A Taste of the Past is being sponsored by Hearst Ranch. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, go to www.hurstranch.com. Well, today we are, um, we'll talk a little bit about sustainable meat and vegetables. Um, but I just had a guest motor in, rumble in on his motorcycle. And today's guest is Seamus Mullen. Seamus, welcome. Good morning. Seamus is uh, a chef. He is the chef and co-owner of Bocaria, two Bocarias, two Bocaria, right, Bocaria in the Flatiron on 19th Street. And, and Soho on Spring Street. Down in Soho. And um, I thought it was really very cool because this um, this month's issue of Sever Magazine is all about markets. And the center spread, if you will, <laughs> the, the centerfold, is a cartoon of La Bocaria. The, in Barcelona. Yeah, in Barcelona. Yeah. And I assume that that's... Where the name is that taken from? Is, yeah, that's the uh, that's the source for the inspiration for the name for the restaurant. I was actually just at La Bocaria in Barcelona last week. Wow, great! It's an amazing place. Yeah. Um, now, Seamus, you have to tell our listeners who um, are not perhaps aware about Bocaria. Bocaria is uh, a tapas restaurant. Basically. Yeah, it's a tapas and regional Spanish restaurant. Um, small plates, seasonally based, uh, and obviously inspired by the market. So we do, and we're close to it, um, the Union Square Farmers Market. So we do a lot of. A lot of uh, market-inspired traditional Spanish food. Mm-hmm. Well, an- another little r- item that maybe people would recognize your name from is that you just recently did a little stint on Iron Chef, Iron Chef America on Food yeah, Network. Yeah. I was on um, a program that they started uh, two seasons ago called Next Iron Chef, in which they kind of vet the the next Iron Chef to join the ranks, and there were ten of us that were competing. So over a six week period, we were uh, we were all vying for the position of next Iron Chef. No, oh, what that's fun. I mean, without yeah. without spilling the beans about the secrets of television. I mean, mm-hmm. how uh, what was what was the most challenging part for you about being on Iron Chef? It's a 
different kind of uh, of long hours. I mean, in in the restaurant industry, we're used to being on our feet for 15, 16 hours in a row. But, and cooking under and pressure. And cooking under pressure. Yeah. But time flies. I mean, last night we were incredibly busy. I, I went to work at 10 in the morning and I got home at 1 in the morning, but it went by like that. Mm-hmm. A nine-hour day in television where you're, then you stand for two hours and then you take one step and then you do that over again 15 times is a completely different kind of exhaustion. That's so, what I was saying. Yeah. Don't spill the beans. About the magic of television. Everyone magic thinks you're doing it on though, the fly. Though the, the thing camera. about Iron Chef that is true is that when the clock starts and you've got an hour to do something, you have an hour have to do something. Hour. Cameras yeah. roll and they don't stop. So yeah. there's there's no BS in that. Mm-hmm. But let's don't get too carried away, folks, with reality TV because <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of unrealness to the reality yeah. TV. But it's fun. Reality. It's fun and we love it and you were you were right up there till the end almost, yeah, right? I was, yeah, I was um, out of 10. I was the third the last uh, third to last. I almost made it. And I, we were in Japan competing at the very end. And it was... Um, but how cool was that? To it was amazing. To travel, yeah. I mean, going, you know, I'm obviously a big market junkie. And going to the Sakiji Fish Market was one of the most amazing places. That was I've in the Savoir Magazine yeah. as well. It's beautiful. Yeah. Amazing. Phenomenal. That that would really be something to see. I've seen films of yeah. it. That's all. It's a fish market that smells like apples. It's amazing. Huh. Leave it to the Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell me, uh, um, you got interested in Spanish food because um, through just going and living abroad and, and yeah. falling in love with the culture, right? Yeah. What? How? How did you happen upon? I mean, after a couple other cooking stints, and you decided to to really go with your love and your passion. Why did you? Why did you hit upon tapas? Well, I mean, there was. There are a number of reasons. I came back from Spain. I'd been working in Spain, and I came back to New York, and there were very, very few Spanish restaurants in New York. I mean, there's mm-hmm. still, there are a few more now, but at the time, and this is in 2004, 2005, there were, um, there were very few Spanish restaurants in New York, and there were only, there's only one or two that was really doing a good job. Um, Alex, at, at, uh, when she was at Tia Pol, who's now at, at Chiquito, right. um, she was doing great food, but outside of that, there was really not very much going on. And um, the time was kind of right for doing Spanish food in New York. There was a lot of interest in Spain, primarily at the high end of the kind of the more avant-garde um, uh, sort of experimental cuisine. But I think that that created a, 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 a in, general interest in Spain um, and people wanted to explore more of the traditional food and the foods of the past, which is, I think, something that we're going to talk about today. And I, I kind of wanted to get on that. That's what really interests me more than anything is is traditional um, cooking. So yeah. I wanted to do something in New York that really hadn't been done before. Well, it's interesting. I I mean, out years ago, and I don't even know if it's still around. Maybe it's still around. In New York, there was um, a a tapas sherry wine bar called Solera. Mm-hmm. And it's still around. Is it still around? Yeah. yeah. And other than that, there what you I mean, tapas was to Americans was relatively or to New York was very, relatively new thing. Yeah. And you know, I'd, I don't, I'm really surprised that there aren't a lot more tapas bars yeah. around because it's such, it's such a terrific way to taste a lot of different foods and just sit and be social and no drink. No commitment. And, yeah. You just, you just have, you know, you, you jump in with some friends and you have a couple of bites and you eat as much as you want. You can sort of scale it. You can have a bite. You can have one little plate of meat and cheese or you can like have a full blown meal. Yeah. Of course, the notion is you're supposed to be drinking along yeah, with it, course. right? Yeah. That's where it comes um, from. Uh, well, um, tell us a little bit more about the 
the history of, I mean, tapas, there's a lot of folklore attached to yeah. tapas. Do you know anything more, having spent so much time in Spain, do you, what do you know well, about the history of tapas? Clearly, the, 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 the real idea behind anything like salty peanuts at the bar is to get the patrons to drink more and spend more money. Right. Um, but uh, the word tapas or tapa literally means top or, or a, the, a lid to a container. And one of the stories is that in um, southern Spain, where it's really hot in the summer, um, there was a whole issue with with contamination of flies flying into people's oh, the fruit um, in, flies yeah, and the, the fruit flies, flies into, their, into their sangria. And so they they uh, they passed a law that every bar had to serve a little plate of food to put on top of it to cover the drink when um, when the patrons were which would know, just attract more flies. Right? Which of course would attract more <laughs> flies. But that's uh, with most things with most folklore. There's it's uh, it's rot with problems. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a good story yeah. anyway, and uh, and I think it's a wonderful tradition, and. What you're doing is is really presenting a lot of, as you said, a lot of the traditional foods mm-hmm. and and the older foods. What what are some of these foods and how you know that you're that go back that are really traditional and are they regional? So you're serving different yeah, several different, different parts of Spain. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, one of the things that we we kind of always have in the back of our mind when we're thinking about food at at, at the restaurant is um this this concept of of. Uh, tradition being born out of necessity. Um, Spain was a very, very poor country for a long time and a dry region, um, and and preserving proteins was extremely difficult. And they developed, really became over the years masters of preserving, using salt to preserve things um, like obviously the ham, ham, ham famous ham, for right. the radical <laughs> ham, the bacalao, the salt cod, um, their anchovies, all of these preserved products, which. Uh, sort of evolved so that people could consume protein over over long periods of time without, you know, they could store it without refrigeration. Right. But um, obviously in today's world, it's not a necessity to, to pack anchovies in salt or to, um, or to make salt cod. But the flavor and the changes in, in, in the way the protein develops because of this process has become really the essence of what is Spanish cuisine. So we, we do a lot with that. We do a lot of things with bacalao, with salt cod. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we use a lot of cured meats. We make a lot of our own you cured do, meats. And I, I was yeah. reading that. You do make your own um, yeah, cured meats. Yeah, we make meats. some. Um, we've made more in the past. Uh, it's it's challenging, but at the same time, we can get a quality a product that's a much higher quality than what we can purchase. Mm-hmm. Just because we have, I mean, we're right next door to the Hudson Valley. We've got wonderful pork uh, to work with. We just did a show pork. on cured meats yeah. with uh, Gay Bros just a couple oh, of weeks cool. ago. Yeah, very so cool. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of great stuff that we can work with here to kind of give our own take on cooking in the language of Spanish food. And of course you make the patatas bravas. Oh, patatas bravas, oh, yeah. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, they're Always. good. And and you know they're deceptively simple and difficult because it's one of those things it's like making churros that has one or two ingredients, three ingredients in the case of churros, but it's all about the process. And with patatas bravas, I mean we we have it's about the potato that you use, it's about the temperature you cook them, it's about how you cook them. They're, you know, it's a three-step process. And uh, to get something that seems so simple, just some fried potatoes. Yeah, and and it's just, and they are addictive. And that's why they're so totally good. addictive, yeah. right? Um, well, at um, at the restaurant, um, you what I think is is also um, very, uh, I guess, social and and a, and a very interesting new innovative concept is that you have a lot of long tables, a lot of mm-hmm. communal tables, and that. Being kind of a new popular thing over the past few years, uh, and you said, but what a better thing to do with tapas, obviously. Yeah, to share. To share with that, yeah. We have a, I I recently, um, there was a couple that was in the restaurant, and they uh, they stopped me. I happened to be walking through the dining room, and they stopped and said, oh, chef, we just wanted to um, to tell you that we... um, we're here on our uh, we're here celebrating the um, our our anniversary, 
and uh, they're sitting at the communal table, and which I was like, oh, that's great. I'm glad you're here to celebrate your anniversary. And they said, and we actually met uh, at this table in your restaurant. Oh, said, oh that's great. And, and they said, and we were actually both on dates with other people, but we ended up talking to each other. And then she was, and she was also pregnant. So it was one of those great, oh great, it was, it was one of those great, so well, she was yeah. pregnant now with their, with their that, baby. Well, so yeah. And so it was one of those great stories of the communal table actually working where yeah. people get to know each other and things work out. So it was, it was really nice. Well, that, well, what a great story. That's wonderful. Well, um, when we, we're going to, um, take a short break and when we come back, we are going to talk about um, not just the meats. We'll talk about some other foods, too. Okay? Great. When the moon's kind of dreamy, starry-eyed and dreamy, and nights are luscious and long, if you're kind of lonely, and all by your own land Then nothing but the blues are brewing The blues are brewing When the wind through the willow Blows across your pillow And tells you sleeping is wrong if love goes a-thirsting Till you feel like bursting Then nothing but the blues are brewing The blues are brewing Suppose you want somebody But you ain't got nobody you only got a gleam in your eyes Till somebody's found you and puts their love in Hi, we are back and we're talking with Seamus Mullen, the chef and co-owner of Bocaria Restaurants and, um, and an almost, almost Iron Chef. <laughs> Close. <laughs> Close, yeah. Um, you serve a lot of um, local ingredients at the restaurants. And we were talking about your house-cured meats and a, a lot of local ingredients, obviously echoing what your experience was in Spain with everything being locally Certainly, procured. Yeah. But you're no stranger to, uh, to local ingredients and farm ingredients. Uh, you have a little bit of a background there on a farm. Yeah, yeah I grew up in Vermont on a, on a small sort of sustainable organic farm. And uh, my parents raised everything from from chickens to sheep to cattle, and we had our own milk and eggs and lots of lots of produce. So I've kind of been around food from the source of food since an early age, and I think that that had a lot to do with my becoming um, a chef. Oh, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's such a intimate relationship yeah. with. Um, you can go food. one of two ways. You can either say I don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> I mean, I did. I did flee the country and end up in New York City, but yeah. I still have. Uh, you know, I still have roots in in, in the farmland. Yeah. Well, when you, um, I mean, do you you? I've heard that you do spend a lot of time back there yeah 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 i I go up and while i was up actually with your son zach not too in the fall and we're doing a lamb slaughter 
um, which was really, really amazing. And, um, I try to get up a few times a year and, uh, and we were always cooking around the garden, which is the most amazing thing to go in the morning, go and collect eggs and then look what's in the garden, pick it and cook it within, you know, minutes. It's mm-hmm. just incredible. Well, now before we went on the air, you told me that you are uh, developing a garden on your roof and yeah. here at Roberta's, they have a, a roof garden. We talk about yeah. a lot and they started LaGrange, mm-hmm. um, a big roof garden. Uh, do you intend to use the produce from that for the restaurants? Yeah, I'd like to use some of it. I have, I have, you know, I don't have a whole lot of stuff growing because I don't have a lot of square footage and it's all in containers, but I have um, a lot of tomatoes. I've got about 10 different varieties of tomatoes growing. Um, I've got uh, pimientos de padrón, the padrón peppers from from. Oh, could uh, I just put Spain. some of those in my garden? Yeah, <laughs> they're doing they're doing really well. They're actually starting. Are those to fly. Hot, are they? Those are those are milder peppers, aren't they? Yeah, well, they what they say is pimientos de padrón algunos pican y otros no, which means some some are spicy and some aren't. They say one in ten is hot. So if you get a hot one, Kidding. you're lucky. So it's, you just gotta, you gotta <laughs> yeah. Try but otherwise, they're, they're usually not very hot. So uh-huh. I, I've got those growing, and I've got three or four different other varieties of of peppers um, and cucumbers and. Uh, some really nice eggplant, lettuce, and herbs. So we've been using the herbs and some of the baby lettuce already in the restaurant, which is really nice. And mm-hmm. um, well, I just I think the roof gardens are are the wave of the future. Yeah, um, because I mean, look at it, it's it's good for uh, good for our bodies and good yeah. for saving the roof and uh, uh, and the wastewater and everything. It's else. you know it's 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 space that people you know typically aren't using anyway. And right. It's, it's so nice in New York City to escape the the. The, all the concrete and everything to get away and just have a little oasis surrounded by greenery. And what better way than to put it to use and put exactly, it on the table? Yeah. Exactly. Um, I know I, every time I'm, I live nearby the um, one of your bulquerias and every time I walk by, it is, people are pouring out the door. I mean, it's a line to wait, you know, wait to get in. And I always think, oh, maybe I'll just stop in for something. <laughs> oh, maybe I won't stop yeah, in. Yeah. You know? it's, it's, they're always 10 deep at the bar and yeah. at the door. Um and I'm, and it's wonderful to see because we were talking about uh, tapas and and how there aren't that many tapas restaurants in New York. What what do you think the most I guess difficult thing for people to to accept about it where it hasn't? I mean, you have made wonderful inroads and and people love. I mean, grazing in small plates that's been popular for many years mm-hmm, now. Certainly. Um, do you think people just aren't? They don't consider it dinner. I mean, what is what? What do you think was the hardest thing for them to get used to? Well, I think part of it was a lack of familiarity with with Spanish food. We don't have the same history with Spanish food in the U.S. that we have with Italian food or French food, and there there hmm. are far more. You know, we've had waves of Italian immigrants in the U.S., so there have been for a very long period of time. There's been an established Italian culinary tradition, and then obviously French food has kind of been the uh, has set the bar for for fine dining and 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 gastronomy in the U.S. for years. There hasn't been the same sort of familiarity with Spanish food in the U.S., pr- primarily because very few Spaniards emigrated to the U.S. If they did leave Spain, they, they went to Latin America. Mm-hmm. Um, some went to France, but for the most part, um, there haven't been there aren't really large uh, communities of Spanish people in, in the U.S. So I think that that has something to do with uh, with the sort of slow acceptance of, of tapas in the U.S. Um, and and partly, I think you're right that. Small plates, people don't always think of them as, oh, yeah, I would go there maybe for a snack, but I'm not going to go for a full, full yeah, or, meal. Or this isn't dinner, not this realizing they've dinner. consumed yeah, enough calories. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. It is very much dinner, and it's yeah. dinner in, in a great way where you can kind of graze and try all these different things right. instead of just uh, shooting it all on one big plate of, of uh, whatever it is, you know. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, the regionalness and the mm-hmm. Spanish regional cuisine. Um, giving us examples of of food from sure, one region sure. and how they compare. Well, there. I mean, Spain is 
it's a small country. It's about the size of Texas. It's not very large, um, but it's incredibly geographically diverse and and uh, and and linguistically diverse. There there are very different cultures within Spain. Um, if you look at like Catalonia, which they speak their own language, mm-hmm. Catalan, which is similar to Provençal French, um, the uh, the cuisine is is very very different, extremely different from from Andalusia in southern Spain. In Andalusia, you have a lot of fried food. Um, they're masters of frying in olive oil. They do a lot of fried uh, seafood, little teeny cuttlefish, or um, they'll do these little chanquetes, which are a teeny little white fish. Um, and then uh, obviously it's very hot in southern Spain. So in the summer they they have a lot of this where salmorejo and gazpacho comes from. They drink a lot of cold soups. Yeah. Um, and then if you go up into the northern part of Catalonia and in, in in the uh, Pyrenees, it's a very alpine culture. Um, the houses look almost like chalets, and the the cuisine is much more it's much more hearty. A lot of stews and braises and game game meat. Um, they have a dish called trinchat, which is uh, which is crushed potatoes with cabbage and and um, and fresh bacon, and it's sort of like Ooh, cold cannon, like yeah. something you would get in uh-huh. Ireland or something you might get out of you know in 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 Bavaria. So they're all over the region, depending upon what grows there, um, and and the climate and the language and the culture. You find very very different foods. Is there any region in particular that? Uh where did you spend the bulk of your time? Well, when you I spent... There? Um, I mean, you've been there, you go... Yeah, I lived there for five okay. years, yeah. on and off. Um, but I spent the majority of my time between um, the Basque Country in, in the north and Catalonia and Barcelona. Um, but I've also been... I spent some time in southern Spain as well. So I've seen quite a bit, you know, the, the diversity of the food in Spain. But there are, there are areas that I love. I mean, I haven't been to Galicia since I was very young, but the food, the, the, the seafood from Galicia is incredible. I mean, it has the, uh, these incredible octopus and turbo and You have scallops. the lisp down very well. I got <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Well, you know, you spend, there, you spend a lot of time there. You end up getting it. Yeah. But, but so seafood, the seafood is... Seafood's phenomenal. And seafood in general in Spain is really yeah. extraordinary. Can you get the white bait here to do? I love the fried yeah. white bait. I love that. Can you? And do you serve that at? Boca we do. Rio? Yeah, we get. We don't do it um, all that often. It really depends. We get. Um, we get it here from. Uh, we get it fresh from from Montauk. Um, hmm. And when when they catch it as a bycatch, we get. We'll, you know, we'll get our, our guys to bring it in for us. We can get it frozen as well, but it's just it's not quite the same product. Yeah, it's really nice. They're they're just these gorgeous little little guys, and we make a little batter for them and fry them in olive oil and. and Extraordinary. And if anyone out there has not tasted a wonderful treat, you just pop yeah. them in your mouth. A whole, yeah. I mean, it's like anchovies, and bones yeah. and all. They just, bones they're just they so little, you don't. Yeah. You know. They're like an inch and a half long. Mm. They're teeny and delicious. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it, I mean, it's beach. It's it reminds me of beach food, yeah. kind of. You it know, is beach food. It's very much southern beach in southern Spain beach food. And the other great thing that I love about it, they're they're sustainable. I mean, they're very low on the food chain. They are they grow very quickly, and so it's not like. You're taking a, a you know bluefin tuna, which takes years and years and years yeah. to mature, and you know this is something that's it's 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 sustainable and it's a good way of eating seafood. Well, it's like you say, it would be it's a byproduct of the fishermen's yeah. catch; they yeah, just throw it out. Catch, right? yeah. yeah, exactly. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, as far as uh, as the vegetables, anything different that you came across there that we that maybe is harder to find here that you would like to use, or that you are going to grow yourself, or have somebody grow yeah. for well, you? Yeah, I mean, one of the things, or have we, someone grow for you. Pimientos de Padrón are a great example of them. I mean, that's that, those are these wonderful peppers um, that you know for for years you couldn't get in the U.S. Um, and about there was a couple of growers in, in California that were growing them, you know, four or five years ago. Um, but now there there's a handful of farmers in in New Jersey that are growing them, and we get them in the summer. And 
There really, I mean, we, there's another pepper that we use, the shishito pepper, which yeah, is in the same yeah. family. Uh, it's a Japanese varietal, and that's something that's grown um, in in large quantities in the U.S. So we can get, we use that as our pimiento de padrón during the during the um, the winter, and then in the summer, once the the real pimiento de padrón start coming around, that's what we switch to. And and there's a farm that we work with in New Jersey that that grows them for us, and they're just amazing, really incredible. But that was something that we didn't have, you know, five years ago, four years ago. It yeah, wasn't around. Right. Well, even the shishito, I. Um, I did not start my own plants from mm-hmm. seeds and um, didn't have any seeds, didn't collect them. But I, every year, I have a hard time finding the little, you know, plants. Yeah. I have to, I have yeah. one supplier and I've got to go and get them early because they sell out yeah. right away. Well, I can, I can get them for you next year. Good, yeah, good. good. You know, I found another pepper. I think it's Mexican. I might not, I don't know if it's Spanish. It might be Mexican. Um, called Suaro. Suaro. That's not. That's probably Mexican. Probably Mexican. And it, and it looks and sounds, the characteristics of it, I, I put a couple in. Um, this season and the characteristics of it sound like a larger shishito Hmm. and um, just to describe for our listeners a shishito pepper is mild in flavor it's Mm, not a not a hot pepper and it as you said it's originally a japanese variety right yeah and it when it grows, it has this wrinkled-looking appearance. It yeah. like, looks like a little old, little old man pepper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's sort of like, up. It grows up to maybe two inches long. It looks kind of, I don't know, almost like a date that's been kind of wrinkled up and extended. But it's they're and they've got a very, very thin flesh and thin skin. So, um, so the typical preparation. Yeah, the typical preparation is just to fry them in olive oil and and sprinkle them with really coarse sea salt, which is of course what we do. And it takes about thirty seconds in the olive oil, and what a great you know, appetizer! Oh, it's just and they're so great good, taste, so yeah. good. And when you pick them fresh off the bush, I mean, you could just pop them stem and all. In oh your yeah, mouth. I mean, yeah. you could tell the ones that have been old and sitting for a while mm-hmm. and shipped out because yeah. you know the stems are really hard and dry. But they 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 really have a nice sort of fruity flavor. We get. It's funny that we were getting them for a while from from a farm that was growing uh, jalapenos right next to them, and there was some cross pollination, yeah. <laughs> and we got these these peppers that look like shishito, but they were incredibly spicy. Oh boy! Yeah, yeah. but they do also change depending upon the time of the season. They're they're spicier. Huh? Interesting. Yeah, yeah I mean, and I learned from one of our guests. I've been trying to separate my my. Your peppers. Uh, vegetables, yeah, my, pep- yeah. my, my spicier peppers or the yeah. you know, different types of tomatoes, so yeah. I don't get that. And uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, that's, the, that's the exciting thing about, about gardening is you never know what's going to happen until it happens. And then you see, I mean, there's nothing more rewarding than seeing the flower and then the fruit and it grows until it's ready to pick it. It's really great. Right? Yeah. Well, I, it's just exciting that, um, that so many restaurants in New York, not, not enough, mm-hmm. but we were, I was talking with a... Um, Amy Kotler mm-hmm. uh, last week about locavorism, mm-hmm. and and having been a former chef, she said, unfortunately, not all chefs are are cued into that. But right. I think more and more you find that chefs. I mean, I'm sure you would agree that yeah. chefs are really interested in in the local foods and getting something that's that for, well. Obviously, you always want the freshest ingredient right. you can get, right? Yeah, and I think that more and more. Um, the guest is expecting it, and and, and certainly um, my generation of cooks, we um, we kind of grew up around that to a, to a large degree. I mean, there's there's been a, a, a shift kind of from. I don't think it's sexy to get something FedExed from from Japan, which was like the big thing. It was in the, in a cool 90s. thing for a while, right? <laughs> now I think it's sexy to get something. I mean, to me, it's sexy to get something from the Hudson Valley that just you know is in its prime, yeah. or to, or to get you know. Something like bluefish, which is delicious that we have in the water right here, right off the coast, yeah, yeah. Or, or the fluke, our local fluke, or we've the black bass we're getting right now. To me, I would much rather have black bass that's that's freshly caught locally and it's delicious and sweet than you know some other super soigné fish that's being flown in from God knows where. That's right, and that I mean, and that is historically how. 
people ate. That's how people ate. Yeah, there was no FedEx back in the 1880s. Yeah. What has, talking about um, uh, our heritage and and our culture, not ours, but in the world, um, have you seen any major changes in the food, let's say, from when you were in living in Spain? What was it? When did you first go there? Like well, the first time I was in, no more than that. It was um, tw- almost twenty years ago, nineteen ninety one. And you just re- you said you were just there last week. So yeah. have you what any? If there were to be a few major shifts that you've seen, anything in particular? Um, yeah, I think that there is the same. A lot of the same trends that we see in the U.S. Here, there was a rise in the late nineties, and well, there's the rise with sort of like uh, with with refined food and and um, um, uh, Nouvelle Cuisine in the early 80s, the late 70s, early 80s, and then Spain kind of went through a little bit of a gastronomic depression in the in the late 80s and the 90s. Um, there was this kind of rise of, of refined, fancy, fine dining that evolved into this into modern gastronomy in Spain, the, the what people erroneously call molecular gastronomy. Yes. Um, and uh, and now there's been a bit of a or biological, which yeah, is, you know, biological, the organic, yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now there's been a bit of a sea change where where there's a, a return to traditional roots and and a reexamination of cuisine and saying, wait a second, this food came from someplace. Let's get back to it. And that's that's something I think is really cool. I mean, getting back to what they call um, they call it cocina de producto, which means basically product cooking means um there's there's two trends in Spain one is cocina de autor which is uh, uh autochthonous cooking if you will um it's kind of like celebrating the chef as artist the chef artist right yeah exactly and the other is cocina de producto where the the, the real emphasis is on the let product let the ingredients let speak. the ingredients speak. Yeah, exactly yeah. and uh and and that's kind of that's coming back into in into well coming into vogue I should say and i think one of the interesting things about it that one of the great things about um, about, for lack of a better term, molecular gastronomy, is it has um, people have become incredible technicians as cooks. Mm. They've really kind of jumped into the science of cooking. You know, if you look at people like what well, everything that Harold McGee has done to sort of to break down what actually happens to proteins and vegetables when right. we cook them, I think is extremely interesting and very valuable. And if you can take that and then apply it to uh, more of what we call cocina de producto, this this product based cooking, um, you can really extract the maximum um, uh, quality product from 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 what you're working with. So, and that's something we try to do a lot in the restaurant to handle things as little as as is necessary to to uh, really bring out the best in the product. So, to take a traditional style of cooking. But handle it with uh, with with kind of a, a more educated hand, mm-hmm. um, a little bit more of a deft deft hand. Um, but still, you're you're getting just a piece of grilled squid with a beautiful olive oil vinaigrette. Yeah, you know. but you know, it's just as you said, it's all in the way it's it's handled, the way it's done exactly. Lack of handling, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, the the dishes at Bocaria certainly speak of the to this, and uh, and it's so nice that you're you know bringing this tradition to New Yorkers and I would encourage anyone visiting New York or living here who's who are listening that there are two opportunities to visit Bocaria. <laughs> if Both one's in- packed you can go to the other. <laughs> Good luck. No, we can always stand up and at the bar and get a drink. Right? Absolutely. Get some get some snacks while you're waiting for a yeah, table. Yeah, well that's great. And I was also very pleased as I walked by the other day to see that you are um, also Bringing the other tradition, the Spanish tradition, that's the World Cup. <laughs> the World Cup. You've got the World Cup playing. Yeah. yeah, we start yeah. tomorrow, um, and we're doing 
unfortunately, the, the schedule is such that uh, it's kind of an early, early time to drink sangria and have buttholes. But <laughs> yeah, they're but, playing ball when we're yeah, having exactly. breakfast. Exactly. Right? But um, yeah, we're, we're, we've, we're doing a, um, a special menu in the morning. So we'll be open for breakfast at 930 at both locations. Um, and we're going to be showing all of the games. Um, at 9.30 and at 12.30, we're going to re- redo. And at 2.30, we're going to do the 7.30 a.m. game. So we'll show all the games throughout the day. And uh, and we have food starting at, at 9.30 in the morning. Oh, terrific. And we yeah. can, you know, jump up and do some Spanish exactly. cheers. And- <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm <laughs> looking forward great. to it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's really thank been you. interesting. And, and I, I really um, I, I really appreciate the, the fact that um, there are some real authentic traditions that you are carrying on. Thank and, you very much. Uh, and hopefully we'll talk again. Great. Thanks, Linda. I, thanks for having me. And thanks for listening. I would like to thank Hearst Ranch for being our sponsor today. And, of course, my producer, Jack Inslee, and engineer, Nat Wiener. I'm Linda Palaccio, and this has been A Taste of the Past. <laughs> <laughs>